Welcome to We the Women. This is our celebration of the 19th Amendment. Exactly 100 years ago, on August 18, 1920, the 19th Amendment was ratified, giving women the right to vote. To celebrate, we'll be talking to women from around South Carolina, thought leaders, movers and shakers. We'll ask them about how they have used their voice and what they have done to contribute to our great democracy. Enjoy the conversation. In this episode, Post and Courier business reporter Emily Williams interviews Helen Hill, Chief Executive Officer of the Charleston Area Convention and Visitors Bureau. All right, well, thank you so much for being here today. I, I really appreciate it, and I'm just excited to talk to you today. Thank you, Emily. Yeah, and um, so I report on tourism at the Post and Courier. So and you course, do a fantastic job. Thank you, but... Of course, we talk a lot uh, for that for that reason. Um, so just to just to start, I mean, you're the top tourism leader in what is, by at least several magazine standards, the number one uh, city in the U.S. Um, and right now, we're in the middle of probably the most challenging time that the tourism industry has has gone through. So, how are you doing right now? <laughs> A loaded question. No. Yeah. Um, actually, I think that um, I would say that the team and I over at Sports Charleston are doing really well. And we're really focused on the future. And it has been such a strange time for us. Um, you know, we're so used to being that team that's planning six to 24 months out, you know, whether it's for a, a meteor convention coming to town or a, a new marketing campaign. And we really are focused right now. We're just doing the next right thing. Um, whatever that is. So we've sort of added that short-term planning to our list. We haven't abandoned the long-term planning, but it's interesting that right now our highest priority is just that next right thing for keeping people safe and keeping people healthy and um, really keeping people employed. You know, there are about 40,000 people in our workforce that depend on tourism. We want them to be able to support a family. What's been surprising for you in just these last few months I mean you've been working in, in tourism your whole career but again you know this is this is just in I know the word unprecedented is is overused but um just just this unexpected time what's been surprising you well I think the thing that has reassured me the most is that Charleston is that special place that we tell the world it is I've just seen some really amazing things happen. I mean, like we all know that um, small business is the backbone of America, um, but we felt it in a different way during COVID. And it's mostly because I've seen people do these amazing things, these owners that are, whether it's doing takeout or, you know, uh, transferring um, to online sales to do anything they can to keep people employed. And um, I even have a good friend that teaser all the time. I'll call her and say, so, do you sell anything to make payroll today? Um, but it's just that kind of spirit is still there. And um, I keep reminding everybody that all the things that made Charleston special will still be here when the pandemic is over. And I know you've said just personally, this has been a, a difficult time for you. You're a very social person. I think people know you usually greet someone with a hug. You can't do that right now. It's really hard. <laughs> it's really hard. I think that we... Um, in the hospitality industry, obviously, we're very focused on service. And so much of that service is demonstrative. And um, whether that's the warm smile that now you can't always see behind the mask 
Um, so we have to smile with our eyes now, we say. Um, but that part is hard, but it'll be back. Um, and so, you know, how do we convey welcome and warmth, you know, without being able to physically touch someone or to shake their hand or give them a big hug? Um, you know, that's the challenge, and um, we're ready to meet it. So I want to ask you about your, just your career overall. And, and I'm curious, did you always know that you wanted to work in tourism? Well, I thought I wanted to be a banker. My dad was a very successful um, mortgage banker. And growing up in Charleston, I thought, what a great career. I'll be a banker. Well, when I left Ashley Hall and got to Clemson, um, my second semester, sophomore year, I decided that that eight o'clock uh, level two accounting class was not for me. And I went through, this is when Clemson still had a catalog and I went through like, what can I pick to graduate in four years? And Clemson university had a new degree for tourism management. And that was the answer. And that's how it started. And from there, um, I did my internship at the Columbia convention and visitors bureau. And then my first job was at wild dunes resort as the concierge. And then for the Visitors Bureau, I started selling ads in the Visitors Guide. So I'm curious about that first job at, at, at Wild Dunes. Did you enjoy that? Was that was that a good fit for you? What, what was that first I job like? I absolutely loved it. And I tell everybody when I retire, I that's what I'm going to do that, that now. That's what I'm going to go back to. Um, you know, being a concierge at a beautiful resort is, um, you know, the best job in the world because people are happy and you're helping them plan their time. And um, it was just an amazingly great job for me. And um, selling ads in the visitor's guide was really fun too, because I learned that no was just the start of the sale. And that has served me well my whole career. So how did that, that job selling, selling ads for that visitor's guide, how do you get from there to leading the entire organization? Well, the convention visitor bureau was really small then. There were five original employees and um, I was actually number six. So the sales manager whose job I got um, was, it was just the best job ever, right? So getting to sell Charleston to meetings and conventions was really easy. And I loved it. So I went from there to marketing, to be the director of marketing. And then when I was 26, way, way before I was ready or prepared, um, I got the job of executive director about two weeks before Hurricane Hugo. And um, that was a big uh, challenge as it relates to after we had Hugo, you know, it was, it was a time to, to do the right thing. And, um, you know, I remember coming back into Charleston after Hugo thinking, what am I going to have to sell? Mm -hmm. And a, a lot like today, all the things that make Charleston special were still there. They're beat up, right? Physically beat up where we're kind of personally beat up now. Um, but all the things were still there. And so, uh, that really changed my outlook for leadership for my whole career. That's a really young age to take on that position. I'm curious what what were the ages of your of your coworkers? Did you um, did you ever have any concerns or even issues about being the authority figure? And and I would say not even within your organization, but I'm sure you're you're going into other spaces in that executive director role where I'm sure you're probably the youngest person in the room a lot of times. Yeah, most often I was. And um, it's really hard not to be that person anymore, by the way. Because <laughs> we used to, um, we would, wouldn't be completely dishonest, but sometimes we would lead people to believe we were older than we were. 
because the five of us were fairly young. Um, but now that we're old, we say, wow, we don't have to add that five years to our age anymore. But it was interesting that a lot of women in this community really helped me in terms of knowing that I was probably in over my head um, and that I was willing to work really hard. And um, so that was a real gift. Who were some of the women who, who did that for you? Well, there's so many. Um, one of the ones that I just, to this day, she still is that person that I can always look to is Dr. Mary Thornley, who is president of Trident Tech. And she has been my chairman for the convention bureau. And she's just got that spirit of, okay, this is a serious problem, but we can figure a way out of it. And um, that's so critical in terms of what we do every day. But I've had, I've been blessed with so many great mentors, you know, in the business world. You know, folks like um, Martha Rivers Ingram, who is the most amazing businesswoman, and Anita Zucker, right? And Lou Hammond, Lou Hammond Associates. And, you know, these ladies were, are leading these huge companies with this, you know, global impact. And they're still the most approachable and the most friendly and the most caring. And, um, you know, that's a gift to have those kind of folks. And, you know, I guess in my life with my child, um, as a kidney transplant patient, I've seen these really amazing women at the medical university. Um, my son's pediatric nephrologist, who is also has an expertise in transplant, Dr. Catherine Twombly, you know, she is able to do research. She's able to take care of patients and she's got a beautiful family that she takes care of. And there's so many of those folks over there inspire me every day and remind me why I'm not in the brain surgery business. I'm glad I'm in the tourism business. Um, we know I'm not dealing with life and death issues, right? And so they really um, inspire me. And probably in my personal life, um, there's this amazing woman named Connie Thompson, who's really like a second mom to me. And she's 94 years old. And she was the first pharmacy graduate female from the University. And she still to this day, she drives and she is, she reads the Wall Street Journal cover to cover every day. And she's so relevant and she's such an encourager to me. Like she'll call me this afternoon and say, so how did that interview go? Um, she's just such an encourager. And, you know, with um, my last group probably is my family because I've got some really amazing um, sisters and aunts because um, my mom died young. And that having that love of people that support you no matter what really matters. And I guess I'm old enough to know now that not everybody was blessed with a great family, and I really was. The Intertech Group and the Zucker family are proud to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment. And you grew up here in, in Charleston. Um, I, I'm curious, what do you think is something that, that women who grow up in Charleston maybe have in common? Well, one of the things that's a real blessing in my life is that my parents sacrificed to send my sisters and I to Ashley Hall School, and it's an all-girls school. And, you know, it just gives you this confidence foundation that I don't know that everyone has that opportunity to have. And my friends at Clemson used to tease me and say, you are so brave. And I really didn't know that the girls weren't supposed to be in charge, right? Because when you go to Ashley Hall, the girls are in charge of everything. And so I think that I was fortunate to um, have that kind of solid platform. And I think there are a lot of women in this community because of Ashley Hall 
that have this real solid foundation. And, um, you know, that's kind of a basis. Like those, my dear friends that I grew up with are still my friends, right? They're still the ones that are encouraging me. And it's interesting that that solid foundation that you get at that age is really important as a girl. That, that's interesting that you said when you went to Clemson, you had people um, saying that you were, you were brave. Oh, can you think of anything that, that you were, that you were doing that made someone say that that made someone notice um, that maybe you had a different kind of leadership experience? I think that, that maybe because I wasn't afraid to speak up or um, I wasn't afraid to contribute. And, um, you know, Clemson is a really big school and I've been at a small school and um, you just sort of find your place within your own little group. And whether it was um, being involved in student government or my sorority or, um, you know, it, with IPTE, um, it was really fun for me, but I just always felt very comfortable speaking up in a, in a real positive way, not in a negative way, but I think that was the difference is I just realized that some people perhaps held back a little bit. And um, I didn't know that till I was older. I guess when, when did you know that then? Uh, my freshman year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> people were like, you are so brave. And I was like, well, let's do this. Let's, you know. And they'd be like, really? You're, you're gonna willing to talk to them about that? And I'm like, yeah, should I not be? And so it was really more of a, I don't think I knew what I had. Yeah. Until I got there. Yeah. So I want to go go back to, to you at, at 26 being the executive director. Like you said, that was just a couple of weeks before Hurricane Hugo. What were those first weeks like? I know even before we started uh, talking officially for this interview, you were talking about when, when your team was in a trailer, you know, so working so at, right after um, the hurricane. But what were those first weeks like new to that job? And, and and really just Charleston trying to recover. Well, one of the things that has been interesting about um, the pandemic and it affecting the whole world is I realized, talking to my colleagues around the country, that we in Charleston, specifically along the coast, we um, were not as disturbed in terms of how to act quickly because we have a lot of hurricane experience, right? For, for better or for worse, this community knows how to come together and react to a crisis. And it's been interesting that that little bit of a head start that we as a community had has probably really paid dividends for us in terms of the long-term plan, in terms of we're not scared to, to plan for the long-term because we know it'll be back because we've, we've lived through those before. And we know that as much as it is absolutely horrible now, it won't always be like this. And because we've been through it. And I think our challenge as leaders right now is to help those people who haven't done it, right? Who haven't had to go through something difficult to be the encourager to say, it really is hard right now, but I promise it's going to get better. And, and, and they know we lived it. Mm-hmm. So I think now, um, like I mentioned before, Charleston's been named uh, the number one city, at least by, so by, Kananas specifically um, nine times uh, so far. Um, and last year, the last time that, that Charleston was named number one, I spoke with the, the editor of Kananas Traveler, and I remember the way she described it is that um, Charleston has kind of a glow around it, which um, 
is an interesting way to describe it, but I, I also think it makes sense um, in terms of how other destinations see the city and then um, and even I think how how residents see it, it's almost like a given now, but I know what we've talked about before is is just the the time that it took to get there and um, the difference between having that that glow and <laughs> the work it took to get there, right? So um, I know we've talked about that before in, in the context of, of bringing the first international flight. And I was wondering if you could talk about that again, just those early, those early travel conferences, those, um, those times before Charleston was, was on any of these lists, before Charleston was on um, that international radar. Well, it was funny because um, people that have come here recently, um, uh, they don't know what it was like before, right? So mm-hmm. when some of us are in awe, right, a little bit in awe that someone is recognizing us in that way, um, you know, there's still, as it relates to Condé Nast, the first time we were on the list, list, I mean, we took San Francisco's place, who the readers had chosen for 18 years in a row. And I remember saying, not to discount our great community, but just said, us? Really? <laughs> I mean, we... we or, or have been outvoted that they want us. So it was interesting that um, when you really dig into those numbers back to what makes Charleston special is always still there. We dig into the numbers. We don't have the absolute most luxurious accommodations in the world. We don't absolutely have the most fantastic restaurants or the greatest attractions or the greatest shopping. But what we do have is the greatest hospitality. And if you look at the rankings every year, for the last nine, we've won because of the hospitality of the community. And um, we have, we're really good in all of those categories, but it's the way people feel when they're here that encourages, I guess, the reader to, to make that choice for us. But, you know, when you think about, I um, work in a place on King Street that I wasn't allowed to ride my bike when I was little, right? So the vibrancy that we see today, um, it would have been hard to imagine then. And um, fortunately, there were some great visionaries like Mary Jones P. Riley who did see that, right? But it's interesting to um, to share with people the, um, the 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 nuts and bolts of, of getting there because it's a slow moving process. You know, the you mentioned British Airways and um, what a wonderful win for our community. Um, really, all of our air service is really one of the most fun things I've ever been involved with. And it looks like we're going to be starting it again based on our current air service. Um, but it was really fun to do it. But it, it was a long process. And it's, um, you know, nothing worth having comes easy. And I guess the greatest advice I always give folks is just continue to be really, really curious. And just know that whatever you choose to do is going to take a lot of hard work. Mm-hmm. I guess what did you what did you hear earlier on Um in your in your start with Charleston tourism, as you were trying to promote the city, um, because like we said, it didn't didn't always have this international uh, reputation. What was your approach? Well, we when I got to the CBB, we were still sort of the folks that said, "Oh, come see the azaleas in the spring," right? Yeah. So we um, had that moonlight and magnolias narrative. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the things that I think we've done very wisely is we've done a lot of research in terms of who is the traveler that is going to be attracted to our community? Because 
the reality is it's not the right destination for everybody. You know, if you're looking for the Las Vegas experience, you're probably not going to choose Charleston, right? But we know what we have. Um, and in all of the surveys that we do, history and culture is always the number one reason people come here. And, it, you know, that sounds a little bit weird, like you're, you're here to go see Fort Sumter, you're here to go see a historic house. But it's really the sense of place that visitors see. There's nothing else like it. It's our differentiating factor, right? There's not another Charleston, South Carolina in the world. And that is probably the most important thing that we've done is to, to sell that authentic story of who we really are. And, you know, and, and certainly lately we've been, our past is, is not all beautiful, right? And, you know, being forthright about um, what we're all about has resonated with the visitors that we've attracted as they're interested in that authentic story. It's been fun for us. Ashley Hall joins the Post and Courier in proudly celebrating the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment and women's right to vote. South Carolina's only all-girls school, Ashley Hall was created in 1909 by founder Mary Macbee, a visionary educator and proud suffragist. Continuing in her footsteps, Ashley Hall remains committed to nurturing the next generation of female leaders in Charleston and beyond. For more information, visit ashleyhall.org. What have the conversations been in the last, just the last couple of months? Um, is of course with uh, protests related to, to racial equality, the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, African-American history is just a, incredibly important to the context of this, of this city and this community. Um, what have been the conversations? Well, you know, you know, Black history is knit into the very fabric of who we are as a Charleston community. I mean, it's a part of every single part from the, um, the historic houses to the, to the amazing food that we have. So it's really integrated. And one of the things that, um, you know, because our community um, suffered the horrific murders at Mother Emanuel, in so many ways, we got a little bit of a five-year jump on some of these difficult conversations um, that the rest of the country is having too. And, you know, back to my heroes, um, two amazing women, um, Ms. Polly Shepard and Felicia Saunders. I mean, you know, Saunders, they, they are the most amazing women because, you know, they live through the worst that can be thrown at them. And here they are, the ones that are encouraging other people, right? So they, um, they're so um, moving and, you know, they've inspired my whole staff. I mean, these women are those people that everyone in they're the heroes that the United States should have, right? But they have been able to, to do that. And it's funny with Ms. Polly, she serves with me on the um, Mother Manual um, Foundation where we're looking to, to have that beautiful um, memorial take place. And you know, she's part of the vision that, yes, we need to honor those folks that were stolen from us, but at the same time, we need to look to the future and part of the magic of that memorial is the part that is looking toward the future. And, um, you know, when they said those magic words that they, the Lord requires us to forgive, but reconciliation takes work. And I think that that's what we all need to do is focus on that work that it takes to get to the finish line. Yeah. I think just beyond elevating, elevating stories and, and the history uh, definitely one of the conversations happening too is is how do we elevate 
of Black-owned businesses, how do we elevate the community economically? And of course, tourism is a huge economic driver in our community. What are some of the ways you think that tourism can can lift up um, Black-owned businesses and and bring them, you know, more of that um, that e economic benefit um, that can make a huge difference for, for families and businesses. Well, we're so excited about the renovation of the visitor center, our visitor center on Main Street. Mm -hmm. And we've got a whole new setup and we're using that opening of the visitor center, whatever that might be, yeah. um, to take the opportunity to not only lift up the black businesses that are currently our members, but to find those businesses who perhaps might not even think they could appeal to visitors and to get them into the family. And um, we're really excited about that because if we um, don't have black businesses benefit from all of this, we've lost somehow. So our goal has been, you know, how can we spread that in, in terms of getting those folks in the, the, the tourism family, so to speak, to, to lift them up to the visitor market and, you know, and help them along that path. And, you know, as we lead up to the opening of the International African American Museum, it's the, it's the perfect timing because I think people will be looking for that. Our visitors will be looking for that authentic experience. Mm -hmm. And the, in the museum, as you just mentioned, they just had their topping out ceremony. They're, so they're looking uh, to open in early 2022. Um, how do you think that museum is going to change Charleston as a, as a place that, that people want to travel to? Well, it's going to give us this amazing opportunity um, to continue our interpretation and talk about the history of Charleston. Because if you think about the museum of, as a starting point, then you can actually go to a place like Middleton and actually see it, right? So it's really a jumping off part. So you've got the opportunity to um, help people plan their trip with that as the foundation of um, what makes us different and special. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to ask you too about what you've seen during your career and then what you'd like to see going forward in terms of diversity and representation in, in leadership roles, um, in terms of seeing women in, in leadership roles, um, women of color, uh, and, and also just, just every aspect of, of diversity. So I guess just first, what have you seen in your career? Have you seen, um, that change at all in terms of who you're seeing in the room? Um, and then what are some of those changes that you're looking to see in the future? Well, I know that I'm really fortunate to have built my career in tourism because tourism is one of the most inclusive industries just generally, right? And when I started back when I was 26, I was usually one of a handful of women that were head of Convention of Visitors Bureaus. And Today, that has dramatically changed. I would say that it's, you know, closer to a third or a half of women. And, um, you know, you've seen that change um, gradually, but it continues to go up. I do think that it's important that we have more women of color in our world. Um, and again, that's a, an opportunity that we have to, to bring more people into the family. The one thing we know um, in tourism marketing or really with any marketing, is that diversity of thought builds better product, right? That um, that opportunity that we have, it just makes it work for us in Charleston specifically, but really for everyone. 
And I know you, you mentioned, so when you started in your career um, being the, the head of the Visitors Bureau, there, there weren't too many other women in that in that role. Um, you also, of course, serve other other roles. And in this community, too, you chair the, uh, the airport authorities board. That's definitely an environment where you find yourself being uh, the 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 only woman in the in the room, or and I'm sure you've found yourself in other situations where maybe you're the only woman in the room, or or one of only a few women in the room. How do you tackle that? How do you approach those kinds of situations, and and how do you think being the only woman in the room affects the outcome? So I hope I bring something to the table with a diverse view, um, having a female at the table. And I really hope that um, that more industries are like the tourism industry. I mean, aeronautics just generally is engineering and math heavy. And um, so it's been more dominated by males. And you're starting to see that change, right? You see that change because of our amazing, um, you know, more women in education interested in science and math. And so you're starting to see that change. So I think that in 10 years from now, I won't be the only girl at an airport board meeting. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a good thing for the airport and for us. What's your advice to someone who is stepping into an environment like that, where they are the only woman in the room on some kind of board, having some authority? What's your advice in that situation? You know, I guess I've always looked at it as a, um, as a benefit to being a girl at a board meeting. Um, and if you have that attitude that you have something to bring and that you do know that you deserve to be there at the table. Uh, a lot of times I think we as women want to wait to be recognized versus starting at the table at the beginning. And you know, my advice to any young leader is always going to be to be really curious and, um, there's never a person alive who doesn't want to be asked about whatever they're working on or about themselves personally. And that being curious really matters. And um, it, it brings an engagement that um, you're more interested in what the other person's saying than necessarily thinking about the next thing you're going to say. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had to handle any type of criticism that you think has to do with the fact that you're a woman in a position of leadership? I think all women are um, measured in a different way, perhaps, than their male counterparts. And um, I think if you're aware of that, um, it, it takes that advantage that men have away, right? If you're aware of that, I mean, like, the big joke at moms is the one day I don't wear a jacket will be the day that someone wants to see me at City Hall or something, right? So I think that there's a um, there's a few things that we can do to prepare for that and to know that that's out there. Someone's always going to be um, could be critical about the way we look. They could be um, critical about the way we speak. Uh, and if you take those things away and you're comfortable and confident, those go away. Mm-hmm. You mentioned before some of the women who have had an influence on you, have been uh, a mentor in some type of way. What about for the women who look up to you as, as a mentor? What's the, the takeaway or the, the lesson, the nuggets of wisdom that you hope that they're getting from, from you that they might 
in an interview someday say Helen Hill taught me this. Well, what would you like? Well, you and I talked about Barbara Williams earlier. Um, yeah. You know, she was obviously a pioneer in um, in in the newspaper business. She was the only girl in the room, right? And those women like Barbara um, and some of the women that you're going to interview always amaze me because of their very focused um, curiosity. And that is the thing that makes people um, the most excited is when you're willing to listen to the great ideas. And you never know where a great idea is going to come from. Um, having a, a child that had a kidney transplant, you know, I've just seen it play out in the hospital environment as a bystander, as a mom. Um, you know, we had a, a very um, scary time when Turner had his transplant when he was three. And that night they were recognized that he had some internal bleeding after the day long surgery. And I saw this thing play out where there were all these um, doctors in the room, the majority of them were men, and they were talking about all of the things that could be. And there was this one young woman who was on the ultrasound machine. And as they were talking about prepping him to go back to surgery to stop this bleeding, she said, wait, wait, wait just a minute. Um, wasn't this child on dialysis? And um, you saw the heads flip around to look at her. And She's, they said, yes, he was. She goes, I really think this is a little bit of dialysis fluid. I don't think it's blood. Well, just like that, she was the least powerful person in the room, but she had the greatest insight, and she was brave enough to speak up. And just like that, the whole room dissipated, and my child didn't have to go back to surgery, and he was fine. And um, But you can't ever um, underestimate where the good idea is going to come from. But we as women have to be brave enough to speak up. I think that's a great closing note. Thank you so much. Um, this is I love you. Yeah. Yeah. MUSC Women's Health has a long tradition of providing compassionate care for the women of South Carolina. Whether you need routine gynecological care or advanced fetal care for your unborn child, Our experts are prepared to work with you to create a care plan. We offer in-person visits, virtual appointments, and virtual childbirth and breastfeeding classes. Our new Sean Jenkins Children's Hospital and Pearl Tourville Women's Pavilion offer you and your family larger rooms and innovations to safely deliver your baby now and in the future. Visit muscikids.org to learn more about our new Women's Pavilion and how we are changing what's possible. We the Women is a special series of the Post and Courier in celebration of the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. To enjoy all 19 interviews, visit postandcourier.com backslash we the women.